Hello, you are listening to Proverbs with Daisy Maskell. It is me, Daisy. Welcome. This is a podcast all about extraordinary people and extraordinary stories. Here we will shine the spotlight on their journeys and hopefully learn something about ourselves and the way that we live our lives from their experiences too. Join me for the next half an hour as we get to know our guest. Welcome to the Proverbs podcast. Now, this is a story that I've been following on social media for quite some time. And it is of a guy called Jesse Crosson, who has just recently been granted a pardon from a 32-year prison sentence after serving 19 of those. We talk about how he has completely turned his life around, what life is really like on the inside, and his experiences with sharing a cell with a serial killer. So I think we're going to learn a lot from this one. So at 18, Jesse Crosson was sentenced to 32 years in prison. Last year, he was granted a pardon and he was released and is now sharing his story of reform. And he's going viral on TikTok with every video. He's also chatting to us on this week's episode. Jesse, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How about yourself? Good. I'm not too bad. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. I mean, anytime somebody reaches out from across the pond to invite me to share my story, I'm really grateful. Whereabouts are you based now, Jesse? So I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia in the United States. Oh, nice, nice, nice. And we always have to ask because us Brits always talk about the weather. What is the weather like where you're at right now? Uh, We got eight inches of snow two days ago. But here's the thing. It was 70 degrees. And then the next day we got eight inches of snow. So I don't really know what's going on. That is scary. That is global warming for you right there. We're, we're, um, I'm based in London and we're just waiting for it to snow. This is like our coldest time of year. But um, yeah, it just can't help. It can't help but rain. Uh, but no, yeah, I really I really appreciate you chatting to us, Jesse. I've actually seen a number of your videos that you've posted out just recently. Um, you've been very, very busy. You're doing really, really well. And what I really respect about the videos that you've been posting out and just you as a person is your honesty and your openness about your experience and your journey so far as well. I think that is really something to be respected um, and admired as well. Do you mind starting off, Jesse, if you're comfortable doing so, just sharing what it was that you were convicted of? Sure. So just after my 18th birthday, um, my buddies and I, we were strung out on drugs. We were kind of out of our minds and we were trying to figure out how we were going to get money. Like what were we going to do? How were we going to get more cocaine? And we had run out of ideas. And then one of my buddies had worked for this restaurant And he said, oh, they're terrible people and they have all these things and, you know, they pay illegal immigrants under the table and then keep the cash. And so we kind of laid out this Robin Hood scenario that allowed us to justify to ourselves this absolutely unforgivable and terrible thing, which was breaking into their home to try to take things from them. Um, And it turned into a robbery when we broke into the home thinking that it was empty and it turned out someone was there. So that changed, you know, from a break into a robbery. Um, And then about a week later, one of my buddies was was worried because his girlfriend had called and these two guys were harassing his girlfriend at home. And there was this big issue over drugs. And I ended up going to try to play hero. I got into an argument with them. I agreed to meet them and I drove out there to meet him. And it was one of those few moments of clarity amongst the kind of like drowning of alcohol and cocaine that I said, you know, this is really not a good idea. Like the, I, sh- I should leave. And I left and they chased me. And then as we were driving down the road and they were kind of like revving up their engine or like preparing to swerve into me, uh, the passenger reached around like he was grabbing something. And I don't, he, he probably was grabbing a stick of gum. But in my mind, I thought he was grabbing a gun and I shot both of them. Um, and they both lived. They both were able to pull off and go and, you know, seek medical help. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just an example of how completely out of my mind I was because I remember driving home from that, like everything blacked out. You know, I had fired the gun. 
And then all of a sudden the radio came coming back in and I realized I was streaming tears down my face and I went back to the house and I just, I, I couldn't communicate. I had no idea how to explain what happened, like to talk. I was just completely out of my mind. And then I, I think it was the next day I got arrested. And I remember feeling this tremendous relief because I had been so out of my mind. I'd been so out of control. And it was like, finally, somebody had stopped me. Finally, there was like some end to this insanity because I didn't know how to stop it before that. I just felt completely, uh, kind of on perpetual motion. And so it was this relief of, okay, you know, I'm arrested and, you know, maybe my life is over, but at least I've stopped. So Jesse, take me back to the time you're, you're 18 years old, which is, is so incredibly young. You know, you've got your whole future ahead of you. You've got a whole life ahead of you. And you hear that you're about to spend 32 years of your life in jail. What goes through your mind when you hear that sentencing? Oh, I mean, I, I went completely numb. Um, so there, there were two responses. Well, the first thing is, you know, the day I walked in for sentencing, the sentencing guidelines were eight to 13 years, and then they were modified to 10 to 16 years. And my lawyer was like, look, you should take this. There's no point in fighting it. They're going to stick with it. Go ahead and take it now because the judge will probably remember the original sentence and you'll probably get the 10 years. Like you'll, you'll be good. And then they said 32 years. And it was this just feeling of kind of like a clenching in my chest. But at the same time, like I said, it wasn't a sharp pain. It was just a numbness all over. But there was also this other thing. You know, my whole life I had been kind of plagued by this feeling of, you know, being broken or inadequate or wrong or. And this felt like a very a validation of that. It felt like, hey, this guy sees what a piece of crap I am. Like this guy sees that I'm clearly without value. And so there was this numbness and this kind of self-pity. But there was also this kind of validation of my worst fear. And it was like, well, I guess I am worthless. So it was it was kind of hard to explain. But again, that numbness lasted until I got back to the jail we had these little AM FM plastic radios you could buy for like $50 or something. And so I, I put the radio on cause I didn't know what else to do. You know, I'd just been sentenced to 32 years and this song came on the radio and it just broke me. Just, there was a lyric where he says, you know, when I died, dig my uh, grave deep, dig my grave shallow so that I can feel the rain. And, and that was it. Like I just completely lost it and cried for like, I don't know, probably 20 minutes. And then I was numb again. And it was, this transition of, you know, what is going on in my life? What is what is happening? And I had no idea. I imagine as well, one of the most daunting times is when you actually enter in to that general population. And I guess that's sort of the first time that it hits you that you're going to be here for a while for the foreseeable. Is there really a sense of a certain dominance beyond, you know, that that numb feeling? Are you are you feeling scared? Are you worried for your own safety? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was in the jail, I was fairly comfortable. You know, there were little fist fights or there were little kind of arguments, but it wasn't a big deal. When I went to receiving, it, it just had a different culture. It felt like the jail. It felt like a continuation of that. I mean, you did have people getting robbed and you did have violence, but it wasn't like uh, wasn't so prevalent that it felt overwhelming. But everybody had been telling me stories all the way from the jail and then through receiving that once you hit the real prison, once this happens, oh, then you'll see. Oh, it's so different. People have been building it up in my mind. And what was really surprising was the first day I walked in, it was just the same. It was just people trying to live their lives. If anything, it was more tranquil or more kind of calm. But I had so internalized that idea that I needed to, you know, make a point and I needed to, you know, prove something that I ended up getting into a conflict, I don't know, about a week after I got there and just got completely smashed. Like I completely destroyed by something because I didn't know how to talk to people. I didn't know how to deal with conflict. I didn't know how to deal with things in a reasonable way. So I was actually the cause. How long did it take you time to adjust? And how long did it take you time to sort of get into a routine where, you know, life inside just became normality to you? I think I, str I struggled for the first year or two. I got to, uh, I got to the mainline prison after about a year and a year and a month, a year and two months, something like that. Um, and then once I got into the woodshop, I got a job in the woodshop, which was regular hours, was kind of consistent. That allowed me to kind of fall into a routine. I was in a place mm -hmm. where I was, uh, you know, I got up and I went to work every day. You know, I went outside when I could. I, just, I had a structure and that began to feel like a normal life. 
up until that point, everything had just been just so open and so unclear and so kind of ambiguous as far as time and, and opportunity and even what I was going to do. That structure really helped me. And that's that's one of the things that I realized throughout my whole bid is that a greater sense of structure really allows me a greater sense of freedom or relaxation or comfort. And as far as the other men that you're living with and working with, do you all know what each other are inside for? So some prisons have a culture of running papers on everybody and trying to find out their history. In Virginia, we didn't. Um, there's kind of a new breed of people that are coming up. But when I went in, it was, you don't ask anybody about their crime. You don't talk about your crime. It was just, it was understood that you leave people be. If people want to volunteer something, that's okay. But otherwise you just let everybody do their own time. Um, and it, it, it's weird because some people would volunteer and some people wouldn't. Um, but I had the experience. I don't, I don't know if this is what you're leaning towards, but uh, when I moved to that woodshop pod, I moved in the cell with this little old man that I thought was like, a really nice guy. I was like, okay, this is great. And we got along great for about six months until my stepmom came back and was like, by the way, Jesse, uh, your roommate's a serial killer. Um, and that was, that was a bit of a shocking experience. Um, and strangely, we got along fairly well after that because of what am I going to do? I, I had an exchange with somebody this morning who was talking about, it's so hard to explain to people that have never been to prison, how quickly and easily you get comfortable with the fact that you're surrounded by murderers and rapists and robbers. And just, that's the reality. You don't have a choice. So it's not a, it's not a, uh, it really isn't a choice to choose or to decide to be okay with that. It's just inevitable. I mean, it's, it's your daily experience. You just asked, answered my follow-up question, Jesse. <laughs> so well done for being so receptive there. I did see you speaking about, um, you know, you, you living essentially sharing a cell with, with someone that was a serial killer and you didn't know for a good six months until your, your stepmother informed you. What did, how did that conversation go down when you confronted him about, you know, you knowing about his, his conviction? Well, so the, the backstory is that, you know, I had felt bad because I was really, I was really fortunate throughout my whole incarceration. You know, I had people that I could connect with. I had, you know, I got mail. I was able to get on the phone. I was able to get visits. I had this tremendous support network, which allowed me to accomplish a lot of things that other people would have accomplished had they had the same thing. And I felt bad because he was this nice little old man who, like I said, he helped me tremendously. Every day he would give me like vocab assignments so I could improve, improve my vocabulary. We used to watch Jeopardy together. Like there were things that he was genuinely benefiting my life. Like he taught me how to shave because I couldn't grow a beard when I first get in. And I didn't know about like shaving with the grain or against the grain or things like that. So mm -hmm. when, when, you know, I said, I would really like him to have somebody to talk to. And he had been stationed in, in Japan when he was in the military. My stepmom had lived in Japan when my grandfather was, was overseas doing missionary work. And so I said, well, maybe she would write and maybe, you know, he could get a letter a month or something. And this would improve his time. And so I asked her. And that was when she decided to kind of do her homework. And, and she came to see me at visit and said, you know, Jesse, that your, your roommate's a serial killer. And then I had to figure out, well, how am I going to address this with him? Am I, am I just going to ignore this? I had already told him that I was going to ask her to write. Um, but I just figured that honesty was the best policy, as uncomfortable as it was. And I just said, you know, hey, Greg, I, I got to talk to you. So you remember how I, I told you my stepmom was going to write you? Well, you know, she looked you up and I can't remember the exact dialogue, but he wait, he just kind of laughed and said, oh, you did your homework. huh?" And then he laughed. Oh, and it was just like creepy, dark. I don't even know how to describe it. It was, it was really uncomfortable. And mm -hmm. for the most part, the vast majority of our interactions were kind of light and comfortable and easy. And he had a sense of humor. But there would these be these moments like I remember asking him one time about the FBI coming to see him. Um, and he was like, yeah, they came to see me and they gave me a polygraph. And one guy just seemed to be convinced that I had beaten a polygraph and that I just I knew some things. And he started laughing that laugh again. And it was like, whatever this part of his life is that that laugh is connected to, I don't want to know. 
Mm-hmm. And then I guess you're sharing a cell with him. What do you do? Do you go and ask for a transfer and then have to, you know, live with him until you you get taken to put into another cell? It's it's sort of, you know, I, I can imagine that the situation that you found yourself in um, and, and sort of props for you for learning something and taking something out of that situation as well. Continuing the conversation on Proverbs after this short break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did you ever meet anyone that you felt didn't deserve a second chance or couldn't be rehabilitated? I met a few people. Um, okay. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I really hate... Um, I hate the way or the dialogue that it often creates when I talk about this because people mm. like to turn it into a sweeping generalization of why people don't deserve a second chance. But I've mm. met people that were so traumatized or so kind of poorly developed as far as, you know, some kind of trauma in their past or maybe just wired the wrong way. that They were continually... Uh, predatory, that they had been predators on the street, they continued to be predators in prison, that there appeared to be no way to break through. And, you know, obviously, there, there, maybe there's somebody out there that could, maybe there's somebody out there who kind of flipped the light switch of hope for them. But for those people that I saw, yeah, I would never want them out there with me or with my family or with you or your family. Um, mm-hmm. And I think they're, they're the minority, but they're the tough bunch, because what do you ever do with those people? Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming you also saw people that also turn their lives around just like you had as well. Absolutely. I, one of my happiest moments out here in the world, I, I went to go meet with the governor a few weeks ago. He was doing a second chances thing to celebrate people who had turned their lives around, pardons he had given out, different things. And as I was walking up to the stage, I saw somebody sitting on the stage. The last time I had seen him, he was in prison. And I was like, wait a minute, that, that looks like that looks like UV. And all of a sudden, I mean, I just felt this like upswelling of happiness. And I get there and I give him a big hug and I go, what, what happened? Like, what's going on? And he said, oh, they, they pardoned me on November 19th. And that was my birthday. So this guy that I, I just care for and respect and just who's an amazing human being got pardoned on my birthday and I got to see him again. And it was like to see people like him who had such long sentences, who had no promise of ever going home, but who were really good men who really had worked their entire time to do something for other people, to do something for themselves, to see that recognized is just the most amazing feeling in the world. And, you know, the thing is, the, the the purpose of prison and the purpose of jail is is really for rehabilitation and to give people an opportunity to turn their lives around. So I think it's great when you see cases like that and, and you know, when it's essentially done its job, you're, you're out and about and you're living a life better and beyond, you know, what you were before you were even convicted. And, and you've learned so much about yourself along the way as well. Um, so it's, it's great that, you know, you, you recognize that there are other people and you've seen that there are other people that were in a similar situation to you, but have got themselves out of it as well. Did you come across any men that were innocent or that claimed that they were innocent? Yeah. So there were, there were two, while I was locked up, there was a man named Thomas Hainsworth who after I believe 27 years was, um, was found to be innocent. The DNA evidence not only cleared him, but actually implicated another guy that he had been locked up with. Uh, and that was the thing that if you want to talk about a sense of betrayal, right? Like not all prisoners have like a sense of, you know, identity or common purpose or whatever, but the whole thing is you don't stab each other in the back, right? Like you have some kind of common respect for each other. 
And this guy had been in there with Thomas for all those years. And he had known that Thomas was in there for a crime that he committed. He was already serving a life sentence, or I think several life sentences. He was not going home. And he let that man sit in prison for 27 years instead of owning up to what he had done. And I just think that is the most unconscionable thing a person can do. Um, and then the other story is uh, a man named Robert Davis, who's local to where I am. He was in there for 11 years before the, the person who had actually committed the crime admitted, yeah, he had nothing to do with it. And then they went back and examined the case and the police had essentially uh, forced him to confess. You know, they had left him for 48 hours without sleep, without access to, you know, rest, without mm -hmm. access to counsel. I mean, this was a guy who had some developmental disabilities, who was who was struggling in the most fundamental ways. And then they're going to basically use psychological pressure or torture to get him to confess to a crime that he did not commit. And thankfully, when he got out, they recognized, OK, maybe we shouldn't be doing this anymore. And they had some new standards put in place as far as the, the practice for interrogation. But, yeah, he lost 11 years of his life or something he had nothing to do with. Hmm. How is time manipulated inside, Jesse? You sort of spoke a little bit about, you know, your your coping me mechanisms. But how did you sort of come to terms with spending? Because you, you did 19 years of essentially what was originally a 32 year sentence, right? Yeah. How did you come to terms with that? Did, did you have days where times or, or even years where, you know, time dragged? Did you have moments where things seemed to speed up? Were you did you have any sense of time? Did you count days? The busier I was and the more structured I was, the happier I was. Oh. The, the most unhappy I was during that entire time was the 10 months uh, that I was at a dormitory during COVID where we were mm -hmm. locked inside a room with nothing to do and nowhere to go. And I mean, that was horrendous. Um, but when I had a job, when I could teach classes, when I could go exercise, when I could lead groups, like my time went by fairly quickly. I mean, I would look by and go, oh, my God, it's, you know, it's been this long and I, I wouldn't even realize it. But strangely, like one of the hardest times that I had was I figured out. So on that 32 year sentence, I had to do about 28 years with good time. When I figured out the halfway point of my sentence and I had that date, that was the only date that I ever counted. When I reached the halfway point of that sentence, I just had a complete breakdown because in my mind, I would I just could not possibly do that amount of time again. I thought it would be a celebratory thing. Like I'm halfway there. This is good to go. But I just collapsed. I didn't want to leave the cell for three days because I was I could not imagine myself basically spending another 14 years in prison. And I mean, I ended up recovering from that and I ended up trying to stay as busy as I could. And, and I had a lot of things that I could do. I had a lot of resources out on the outside. I reached out for things that I could volunteer for, jobs that I could do inside. I just stayed as busy as I could. And that really helped time to pass. But yeah, that, that halfway point and then the period where, when COVID hit and we were just locked down and there was nowhere to go and nothing to do, that was pretty horrible. How aware are you of the outside world as well, Jesse? Is it good to be aware of what's going on out there or, or do you really have your own sort of sense of community and lives inside? You know, a lot of guys have a lot of different approaches to that. For me, I always wanted to know what was going on, on the outside. People would always say, well, what do you want to hear about or what do you not want to hear about? And I wanted to hear about everything because I never wanted to lose touch with the outside world to the point that I was only living for prison because I watched a lot of guys become kind of professional prisoners. They were really good at hustling or they were really good at doing what they were doing. And they were only good in that environment. And were they to get out, there's a good chance they were coming back because they had learned nothing or they had no sense of what the outside world was. And I didn't want to end up in that position. At the same time, the hardest thing was when I got caught up in the drama of the world out here for things that I couldn't do. Remember when my grandfather was complaining they were going to charge him an exorbitant amount of money to put a roof on his house. And I was so frustrated and so angry at myself that I couldn't be there to help him put that roof on. Or it was something that was going on with my family and they just needed help. My mom, you know, had a property that was in, in really bad shape and she just needed help. And there's things like that were really difficult. Um, but again, I tried to stay as aware I was of, of the outside world and never lose that as my, my destination. Because I think a lot of the guys that lost that as their destination ended up living lives in prison that just really weren't compatible with getting out one day. Well, last year you were given a pardon and you were released as well. Do you remember the moment that you found out? I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, 
So it was two o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I definitely didn't expect that to happen because I had always thought that if you were going to get a pardon, it would happen, you know, first thing in the morning, or I'd heard of one guy where they'd got him right at lunch. And so it's two in the afternoon. I was going to try to sit down. I'd gotten a spot on the phone and I was going to go try to call my girlfriend and she didn't answer. And so the counselor came in, there was waving to me and this was in the middle of COVID and I didn't have my mask on. And I figured she would make me put, she said, no, just get in here right now. And so I was worried because a lot of times when you get called to the counselor's office, that means, you know, somebody's died or some horrible thing has happened or you have to deal with, you know, whatever. It's usually bad news. But I got in there and she had this kind of look on her face and I didn't know what it was, but it, it, it made me have some sense of hope. And then there was a speakerphone. There was somebody on the speakerphone and they said, well, you know, Mr. Crossan, are you sitting down? And I said, no. And I just kind of felt this like building in my chest. And they said, well, uh, because you're leaving Coffeewood today, you've been granted a pardon. And oh I just God. dropped to one knee and just started like screaming tears and just I, I didn't know how to process. It was almost like the numbness of when I'd been sentenced because it was so inconceivable. Mm-hmm. Right. It was so unimaginable that I could actually get out before the 10 years that that the work I had done would be recognized, that the work I had done would be considered enough. Because how do you ever make up for the, the bad things you've done? I mean, I, I felt this horrible sense of struggle about whether I could ever do enough to make it OK or whether getting out early would somehow like uh, devalue the suffering of the victims in my case. Or I just I struggled with it. in that moment. It was just it was magical. It was really amazing. Mm-hmm. And how was it getting back to life on the outside? What was the f- first thing you did on the day that you got out? So, yeah, I mean, they, they let me out that day. That was two wow. o'clock. I walked out the gate at one thirty. Um, Did you have you know, any idea, Jesse, that you were going to be given this pardon at all? Was this literally news to you there and then? So I had filed in 2019 and I had filed with no expectation of it happening. I had I had a mentor who told me, he said, look, we can't control the outcome of anything. But the best thing we can do is the next right thing. And if once we've done everything in our power, we just have to let go of the results. So I filed the pardon under the hopes that at least when I spent the next you know, 12 or 14 years in prison, I could know that I had done everything in my power, that I, I hadn't you know, shortchanged myself or I had not you know, taken any opportunity. And then it kind of built. I, I got some TV coverage for it. These things developed and I, it became you know, a possibility. And in February of last year, uh, they called my mom and said, look, we just want to let you know that Jesse's pardon is on the table. We're going to look at it. You know, there are no guarantees. We can't tell you what's going to happen, but we should hear something by the end of the year. So there was this hope that maybe I would hear something or things would go well. And then, yeah, in, in August, on August 16th, um, I, it just happened. And it was just kind of magical and amazing. And yeah, I, I don't really know how to put it into words. Well, you've been out about four and a half months. Do you find yourself doing things that were the norm inside that are just routine oh. to you now? I, the, the biggest one that's so hard, I, mean, I have all these weird little habits, but the one that's so hard is I always forget to turn water off. Like if I'm cleaning the shower, <laughs> I just leave it running. Or if I'm, I'm running the tap, I leave it running. And then I come back and realize I've left it on. Because for all those years, we had buttons that we pressed that automatically yeah. turned off. There was never a lever to turn things on. I mean, some of the habits, some of the kind of PTSD stuff about crowds, the fact that mm-hmm. oh, my poor girlfriend, we, we had a date night and I, I was so sweet about it. I went and got food. I got it all set up. And then literally before she sat down, I was already like halfway through, if not all the way through with my food, because it was oh, just no. in, in the chow hall. You have to eat. If you're not eating, they're yeah. blowing the whistle behind you, yelling you to walk and talk. And it just. Yeah, it was uh, there, there have been some lasting effects that have not been my favorite that I, I'm trying to deal mm-hmm. with on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And how would you say that this this entire experience has changed you, Jesse, whether that be for the, for, you know, for the good? What are some things that you feel like will stick with you for, for a long time or for the rest of your life? I mean, there's undoubtedly some trauma or some kind of negative uh, effects. But in reality, it's I, I went from being out of control, hating myself, hating the world to being in a place where I am grateful for every everything that I have, for every relationship that I have, for every opportunity that I have. You know, I wake up and I, I can recognize how many options I have, how many amazing people I have in my life. 
I, I was unable to see anything outside of kind of my own, you know, self-pity before I went to prison. And now I feel like I have a great sense of gratitude for everything around me. And then some of the practices I picked up, you know, meditation was a big part of the, the kind of process of turning my life around. Uh, getting sober was a huge part of turning my life around and actually having a support structure that I engage with regularly. Um, and just learning, opening my mind to the fact that it's, it's, it's not just about me and my kind of primal, you know, suffering or my primal desires or my primal whatever, because I live so much in my own head that it was, it was horrible. I mean, that was probably the worst prison of all, because at least when I was physically in prison, but I could wake up in the morning and I could have a sense of gratitude or I could connect with people or I could do something meaningful for another person. I was free in that sense. And before then I was out in the world, but I was just as trapped as, you know, as I could possibly be. And I'm sure that this question you've sort of answered a number of times over the past decade alone. And I'm sure today it will have a very, very different answer than previous. But what are your hopes for the future now, Jesse? I, I, somebody told me a long time ago, it was some of the best advice I ever got, is that if you make plans, they can get sidetracked. But if you make sure you have options, then no matter what happens, you have a direction to go in. Um, so there, there are a lot of things. I really fell in love with counseling and mentoring when I was in prison. And that's something that I want to pursue. Working people, with people one-on-one has just been the most gratifying, amazing opportunity in my life because to watch that light switch of hope flick on in somebody, to watch those behaviors slowly change, to watch somebody finally feel a sense of agency or control or hope in their life is just the most amazing. And then on a larger scale, designing programming for mental health programs uh, mental health programs, maybe for schools or juvenile detention facilities or prisons, that allows me to do the same thing on a larger scale. And then I've really loved the opportunity of, you know, being on this podcast and telling this story or being on TikTok and telling a story, you know, being asked to speak about this experience and speak about what is and isn't working in our system. Because I think mm-hmm. so people, so many people don't know and be able to highlight that because nothing gets changed if nobody talks about it. Nothing gets changed if nobody knows about it. And right now, public safety is not being well protected by the system we have. People are not being kept safe. The, the, just there are so many things that are broken that we can address if we just take the time to talk about them. And it's not a it's not a partisan issue. It's not a, a moral issue. It's just a common sense issue. And I just love the opportunity to bring that into the public consciousness and hopefully, you know, seek some kind of resolution or some kind of improvement. I think there's a lot of power of you being a voice behind those things as well, because you have experienced this firsthand. You're a guy that has literally turned his life upside down and around. And, you know, you've seen the, the benefits of doing so. So I think, you know, I, I wish you all the best with that venture, because I think that would be an incredible move for you for sure um, and we ask this at the end of every episode of everyone what is your mantra in life Jesse what is the thing that keeps you going yeah I mean it, it would be a deep breath and, and I know that sounds like corny or that sounds kind of that's really what it was is I realized wherever I am no matter what's going on I have the ability to kind of come back to where I'm at to this present moment and there is so much to be grateful for even in the middle of a panic attack at Costco when I first out even in the middle of like emotional drama and strife and confusion if I can come back to where I'm at there's this great sense of possibility and love and connection that I never had any idea was possible but it's it's never that far away it's just right here if we stop to appreciate it. That's a good bit of a bit of advice right there as well, Jesse. Just sort of taking time to be present within yourself as well and, and in the moment. I think I think we can all take something away from that. Jesse, thank you so much for this. I've really enjoyed this one. I really appreciate the work as well that you've done to better yourself. You know, no excuses, just full responsibility and, and a determination to right your wrongs as well. And I think that's really powerful. You've done so much to get yourself to where you're where you are right now. And I think you should be really, really proud of that. Jesse, I genuinely wish you all of the best and keep on you know sharing your wisdom and keep on motivating people and, and keep on uploading your videos online as well because I think that's doing a lot thank you very much I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity and that concludes this episode of Proverbs with Daisy Maskell that is me I hope you enjoyed it hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes and I will see you soon
It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com